Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Caged In Pigcast, where I am speaking to people involved in front of and behind the camera, Michael Zarnowski's drama pig. I had the absolute pleasure of talking to um, Vanessa Block, who wrote the story for this, as well as being one of the producers on this fantastic film. If you haven't already, go back and listen to both my conversations with David Nell, fantastic actor who's in a pivotal role with Nick Cage and Alex Wolf, as well as a interview with the editor, Brett Buckman. We definitely touch on some things that would be considered spoilers. So if you'd like to go into this film fresh, I would highly advise that you tune out now. Come listen after you've watched this amazing film. They don't care about you. None of them. They don't even know you. Because you haven't shown them. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by one of Pig's writers and producers, Vanessa Block. First of all, I want to congratulate you on this fantastic, beautiful film that seems to have like garnered all this praise like critically across the board. How does it feel to be in the middle of all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's there's a sort of surreal quality to it. I think that, you know, for anyone who sets out to make a film that's that's deeply personal um, and beautiful to them, the hope is that it will be received with with sort of a, a similar love and affection. And to see that play out has been amazing and really gratifying. So where did this story come from? Like, uh, yeah, where was like the germs of the idea for you, Michael? Yeah, so we had come upon an article that referenced um, an old man basically guarding his truffle pig on his porch with a shotgun. <laughs> um, and that image really stuck with us, image of, you know, of a person who, who loved their pet so much and was so protective that they would sit outside at night just making sure that no one would come in and, and kidnap their beloved pet. So that was really the, the kernel of the idea, but it rapidly evolved into something much uh, deeper and I think more universal, which is this meditation on the commonality of, of shared, you know, trauma and loss yeah. um, and our relationship to our mortality. So, so like, obviously when like you give the elevator pitch for this film, like, or like you see the brief synopsis, there was, the, yeah, there's been comparisons to stuff like John Wick and Taken from day one. <laughs> Were you guys like somehow aware of that and like excited because obviously the tone of the film is not that at all? Yeah, no, the honest answer is that we weren't even thinking in those terms at all. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, the initial conceit of the film existed outside of any thinking of who would play the lead actor. So we definitely didn't have Nicolas Cage in mind. We didn't have anyone in mind. Nick came to us through uh, WME, um, sent the script to him and his team, and he just responded very passionately to the material and, and you know, joined fairly early in the process. But the script had already been written, so the tone of the film had already been established in the writing long before his involvement. And I think it... You know, I didn't understand the full scope of his filmography and kind of the, the, the 
cultural awareness of Nicolas Cage. I actually didn't grow up watching many Nick Cage films. Um, so I had to really educate myself after we cast him, you know, on all of the, the incredible roles that he's brought us. And he, you know, he's just, he's covered so much cinematic ground yeah. and played so many different characters. It's, it's kind of, it's insane. Um, but there seems to be this association of him with action films, which obviously pig is not. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, people go in with a certain degree of wish fulfillment, I think, and what this film is going to be just based on his association. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I think we've been pleasantly surprised to see that the response to that being subverted has actually been really positive. Mm. Um, but it was never our intention to subvert anything. It just kind of was a byproduct of, you know, uh, the script meeting Nicolas Cage. Well, this this is one, like, I've been kind of talking about for ages. I think, like, because obviously, when was this shot? Like, late 2019, right? Or Yeah, it was shot. We shot it. We finished um, around October, I believe, of 2019. Yeah, because we finished the final day of the edit, just very fortuitously was the Friday before the lockdown in LA was announced for COVID. <laughs> so we just managed to squeeze through the edit before everything shut down. How was that feeling then of just kind of having this finished work and having no idea what's going to happen to it in, in the kind of world we were living in last year? That's a really thoughtful, interesting question. I I haven't actually really like taken a moment to think about that until now. Um, I guess it, I, I don't think, I think we were so like in the momentum of trying to finish the film and because we finished the edit, but we still had to grade the film, score the film. Um, we had ADR work to do. So I think when you're in, you know, the nitty gritty of everything, you're just, you're so preoccupied by what's immediately in front of you that I don't think that we even took a moment to think about that we might have to sort of sit on this movie for a year while everything shut down. And, and nobody really knew what COVID was going to do to the yeah. world. So I think we were all under the assumption that maybe this would be, you know, a few weeks and yeah, then yeah, everything yeah. reopened. But yeah, we didn't, we didn't realize at the time it, that this would be something to be shelved for so long. Well, it kind of feels like it's a perfect time for it to have come out because like, I don't know, it feels very refreshing and like, because it is that thing of like it isn't the Nick Cage film that everyone expected it to be, and like I don't, I don't want to mm -hmm. sound like uh, a little a little hipster doofus, but like I think like when <laughs> I f first saw a still of the film, I was like, ah, oh, I think I I I've gathered the tone of this, and I'm really excited to kind of see the like that more dour and like serious tone that the film has. And when writing the film, how important was it to to maintain the, the that kind of I don't know that serious tone that, that this film has yeah that was very inherent to the DNA of the project at the writing phase all the way through every conversation about cinematography with our amazing DP Pat Scola who just did a beautiful job who really approached the film with a background in both smaller independent filmmaking, but then also had done a lot of larger budget commercials. Yeah. So he 
was able to tap into something that felt very, you know, visually heightened in one sense, but also very grounded and naturalistic. And our film tonally, again, from even the script phase was very much this meeting of both of those worlds of the high and the low, yeah. you know, the, the, the natural and the, the sort of more magical world of the restaurant scene in Portland. So it's, it is an amalgamation of all of those things. And we wanted that to be reflected um, in the music, mm -hmm. in the cinematography, in the production design. So I just feel like everyone really understood that from the script itself. Um, the, the script was really the blueprint um, and just kind of, you know, very seamlessly took that baton and ran with it. Um, and I think you feel that cohesiveness in the product. But to your earlier point, I think you were astute to bring up just how, you know, audiences seem to be really primed for this film right now yeah. because of coming out of COVID. And I think that that's a really smart thing to point out just because I don't know that the reception would have even been this loving mm -hmm. if people had seen the film in the pre-COVID era. I think something about the last year, year and a half being in lockdown has really forced this introspection and like really deep existential thinking mm -hmm. that, you know, we were all moving so quickly and it kind of just like forced the brakes on everything. And so I think that has allowed people to appreciate a slower paced film, a film that's very inward, very meditative. And if we hadn't had this period, I think maybe people would have just kind of run right past the movie or maybe even been frustrated by, by the slowness of it, but instead they're really appreciating and connecting to it. Well, I guess a lot of people over the past 18 months have got, yeah, as you said, used to that slower pace of life, unfortunately have had to like encounter loss. And But a lot of people as well have probably... Yeah uh found a newfound love for cooking which is obviously like a, a beating heart of this film and like the, the way that the food is treated is so so like loving and um there's an amazing clip that neon recently put out of um nick like like cooking with um isaac chris um oh, his name's on pardon yes Jeff Zarnecki, chris Zarnecki. yeah 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 and like so what was the kind of like uh, pre-prep for the film like what, what kind of stuff were, what went into prepping it yeah an enormous amount of work was done actually sort of uncharacteristically and non-traditionally early in the process mm -hmm. so even before we had financing because this this was a first time feature. Yeah. Um, Michael and I had collaborated on um, a short documentary, which was our first project together. We actually met in college, were good friends there, and then went on to collaborate on this documentary, which did very well. And that sort of cemented our, our creative partnership. But this was the first feature that we had done. And so, you know, as any filmmaker knows, people aren't breaking down doors to throw money at first time <laughs> filmmakers. There's a, a high risk and a, and a lot of fear associated with that. So it was imperative that we really kind of concretize the vision in a very clear way for the people that would be putting money into the project. So we took a number of trips up to Portland before any money was in place, um, met with a lot of locals, did a ton of location scouting, took photos. Um, and the food scene was something that we explored heavily at that time and formed relationships with um, a very prolific local truffle hunter named Jack Zarnecki, whose family, the Zarnecki family, has um, restaurants in the Portland area. And one of those people is Chris, uh, Chef Chris Zarnecki, mm -hmm. who owns the 
Bill Palmer house. And from early on, we invited him into the process and he agreed to be our lead uh, chef consultant. So he met with Nick, as you saw in the video, and and taught him proper chopping techniques, really kind of helped get get the physicality down because we needed to believe that Nick had this, you know, cooking superpower as this rock star chef from a former life. Um, And that needed to be really evident in, you know, close-ups of his hands, just the way that he interacted with food is really critical that you felt the authenticity of that. Mm -hmm. And to Nick's credit too, he's a big foodie um, and has a very, you know, almost sensual relationship with food. He has a real reverence for the art of cooking. So he, he took to that pretty seamlessly and really embraced uh, the education of that. Well, everyone I've spoke to who's worked with Nick always says that he comes to a project, not only like knowing the script inside out, but always has these kind of interesting ideas of what he wants to do with the character what what was the kind of things he kind of discussed with you guys that he kind of wanted that he saw in Rob yeah I think it was almost more that he saw himself Mm -hmm. in Rob and I think I think that was why this he brought such a an authenticity to the role he really stepped into rob as himself where he was in his life at that time i know that his relationship with his cat was uh, a huge inspiration for him that he tapped into you know the love of of an animal friend and kind of the purity of that you know human animal connection Um, so I think this was very personal to him. And I think we've all been surprised by uh, how surprised, like how surprised other people seem to be that he yeah. would do such an introspective dramatic role. And, and again, I think people forget the scope of his filmography. You know, he's done huge action films. He's obviously famous for that style, but he he's done some some deeply dramatic roles that he's yeah. been incredible in as well. So in a way, this is a return to that form for him. But um, he also just, yeah, he knew the script so well. And I think, you know, the material is really where it all begins. And he had almost a reverence for the writing. Um, He knew every line, not just of dialogue for himself. He knew everyone else's dialogue and he knew all of the action sequences almost verbatim (laughs) um, and was very loyal to the writing. So I think that was a big piece of what he brought as well. Well, I was fortunate enough recently to speak to David now has that yeah, fantastic yeah. scene with <laughs> with with Nick and Alex and he he attested to the script he said it was a beautiful a beautiful like yeah a beautifully written like uh script and that it, I don't know like um mm-hmm. it just conveyed like you could from reading it you just got the tone of what what the film was yeah um, yeah absolutely um, what, what, one of the other points I wanted to talk about is obviously you have this central relationship throughout the film that is between Rob and Amir. How important mm-hmm. was it for you guys to make sure that that kind of dynamic between those two actors, like, was there like, did you, I don't know, was there any concerns that like, obviously that those two wouldn't gel? Cause I know that they've kind of, there's photos of them. They look like they've become the best of friends. And I know that uh, Alex has said that Nick is his favorite actor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think initially there was no expectation. We had hoped that there would be, you know, purely on a creative acting yeah. side, we felt that there would be a, a really fun alchemy that could exist between those two men as actors. Yeah. You know, I don't think we could have ever 
have anticipated that they would develop this this really fun friendship, um, which they did. I think Alex Wolf um, has an obvious admiration for Nicolas Cage as an actor. And a, a lot of that is felt even in his performance as a mirror in relation to Rob, the character. And I think that played really well because Rob in the film exists in these kind of mythic proportions. He's a man in that kind of classic noir sense. We don't really know what his backstory is. It's a slow going back to those years. Um, and Amir, who, you know, is very frustrated by him and annoyed by him, also has this kind of awe for him. And that was what Alex Wolf felt towards Nicolas Cage. So we got just really lucky at every stage of this. And I think you know, you just kind of have to go into these things, making the best decisions you can with the information you have and magical things happen sometimes. And, and they did on this film. Well, it's a film that very much feels like everybody is working to the same goal. Like, and that, like even, yeah, even like the small characters, like I mentioned, David Nell or kind of Darius Pierce or even Adam Arkin, they've got these tiny, like, do you know what I mean? The, the, tiny amounts of screen time yet make such a large impact on the film and like i guess one of the things that's very interesting about this film is it's a very male like story about like but it has this like the loomingness of the female characters whether it is kind of rob's wife or um adam arkin's cat yeah amir's mum or or even brandy herself that the pig um like what was the kind of discussions around that when, like, in the script? Was there, like, that thing of, I don't know, yeah, can, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, uh, I mean, it's something that I'm very passionate about and is very important to me, being a, a female filmmaker and, yeah. and definitely being, you know, central on a film that was was fairly male-dominated, at least optically and whatnot. Um, I think it was really important that, you know, the feminine spirit, if you will, whatever that means exactly, was made manifest in the film um, and was, you know, part of the central driving force of the film. And I think that that energy, however you want to define it, is felt in kind of every department of the movie. I think it's felt musically. It was important to us that this sense of the ghost of the feminine, which is the thing that, you know, all of these characters have really lost and are grappling with, be felt. Um, it's felt in the sensitivity of the cinematography, the intimacy of that. There's a certain, you know, internal, meditative, sensitive quality to this film that pervades all aspects of it. Um, and I think, again, you know, people go into the film both because it's externally male-driven with male characters and also Nicolas Cage, you know, has traditionally done a lot of roles that I guess on their face feel very quote-unquote masculine. And again, whatever that means, because I don't even know how you would define that, but I think it's it's part of our cultural kind of collective understanding of what those terms mean. So there's an expectation that it's gonna be one thing and when it subverts that and becomes something much more sensitive and kind of soft in a way, um, I think that surprises and interests people. De definitely, definitely. Um, so like to kind of go back to Portland, like how, how integral <clears throat> was that in the script? Because the film, to, to, it feels like it's another character, right? It's kind of like Portland is like a character unto itself. So how integral was that in the script or was there other, was it written like that or? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> again, excuse me, tonally the film 
definitely walks this tightrope between something very grounded and naturalistic and something very magical and heightened. We wanted the film to feel, you know, almost not quite to the extent of magical realism, but we wanted it to have this fable-like storybook quality to it. And you feel that through the chapter markers and you feel that through the movement through these various realms um, where we encounter, as you pointed out, kind of these small but very memorable characters that exist almost as these gatekeepers. Um, And we very much wanted this sense that if you were to explore each of those side characters, that it would open you up to an entire sub-community, that each one of those people in and of themselves could be their own film. Um, So that was all very intentional. And Portland as a place plays such a pivotal role in that because grounding that magic in actual spaces that exist that people can go visit um, was critical and also kind of heightens the magic even more. So everywhere, everything that you see in the film is, a, is an actual location that mm-hmm. um, one can go to. You can eat in those restaurants. You can, you know, you can explore those neighborhoods, all of that, which is pretty cool. What was the kind of vibe like on set? Was it, mm-hmm. was it like a, was it, yeah, cause it was what 20 day shoot. Like that sounds it's crazy, okay. right? Oh my God. Yeah. It, it was, you're taking me back now, like, you know, PTSD. two years. But I, I had forgotten those, those nights. Yeah. Those were, those were tough days. Um, the vibe was just super loving and positive. Like, look, I take issue with even the terminology that we continue to use in the industry of like above the line, below the line. I feel like that is, a, that's the conversation for another time. I think there's something inherently offensive and disrespectful about that because a film is a family. You know, the crews, like literally you cannot make a movie without every single person that shows up every day and gives all of their heart, souls, and minds to this process. I mean, the Portland crews gave so much, were so artistic, thoughtful, respectful, kind. Uh, I mean, I just can't say enough positive things about the experience of working with that team and they really made the movie. Um, So I think you feel the love and affection that everyone brought to the process Mm -hmm. in the product. And the beauty of filmmaking is that I think that there's, those things are inextricably linked and people, corporations maybe, or people, you know, the suits, if you will, try to unlink those things and Mm -hmm. believe that you can have this top down approach and still make a great film. And I don't think that you can. I think that you feel the disconnect in the product. It's this very tangible thing. And when there is that connection and that family kind of respect, you feel that in the product. And we're experiencing that with this film. Yeah, you kind of, I'm not sure how true this is. Obviously I read it on IMDb, but it's reported that Nick took a lot of the cast and crew to watch Parasite whilst whilst filming. Was, yeah. Did that happen? <laughs> that did happen. Yeah, we saw Parasite together and it was it rocked all of our worlds <laughs> at the time. Yeah. It was unbelievable film. At that point, did you know that Neon would distribute the film or was it kind of kis- no. kismet that that happened? Yeah that's, a, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I had never made that connection. Yeah, I guess it was prophetic in a way. How yeah. funny. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um were there any like standout days like scenes that were were kind of yeah like ma- like magical to watch like or kind of like were, were yeah the, were there days that kind of stood out to you of like we're making something special here yeah you know I think the final encounter excuse me between um 
Adam Arkin and Nick um, in the office was one of the days that I felt a lot of magic in the room when Nick breaks down mm-hmm. after the news is delivered of what happened to the pig. That was a day that I think you could hear a pin drop. Um, he gave so much of his you know, body and heart to that moment. Um, that was a very magical, magical day. A lot of the scenes, oddly, and I know Adam isn't in the film too much, but there was something very... Uh, powerful and electric about the dynamic between Adam Arkin and Nicolas Cage. Um, and Adam was actually a pretty late hire in the process. We um, we were in a bit of a bind. We, we didn't have an actor for that role. Um, and I had seen Adam Arkin in A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers film, and thought even though it was a small performance, it was so memorable and incredible. And he had such a, a charisma and there was this naturalism to how he read dialogue. And so I just, I felt like he would be perfect for the part and brought him in and we were lucky enough to get him. Um, so he showed up very late in the game and just fit again seamlessly into this puzzle that had already been established. He just, he felt like the missing piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and you feel that chemistry in the scenes that he did with Nick. So for me, those were memorable days. Um, yeah, I think those were probably the most memorable. Perfect. So um, to kind of backtrack a bit, what was it, what was the f- initial feeling when you found out Nick was going to be on the project? I guess like, as you said, you didn't you didn't really have that reverence, or not not reverence, but didn't know his back catalogue as as well as nerds like me. But like, um, was it still still you must have like been like this? Nick Cage is a big deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it was a surreal moment for sure. Just hearing that you know a star of his stature wanted to do this tiny little film, and not only wanted to do it, but clearly had this passion for the material. Mm-hmm. So. No, it was in- incredibly affirming, exciting. Um, I think we were just over the moon about it and also very quickly knew that we wanted to lock him in and just kind of build the schedule and the film around his involvement in the process. He became very central to it. It, it, it very much it very much feels that. And, and now that the film's out, and obviously a lot of people are commenting on the fact that there is this um, parallels between Nick's career, whether it's like that kind of, period of his career where he kind of was metaphorically in the wilderness of Hollywood do you know what I mean he kind of had that heyday that a lot of people would say in the 90s is that is that something that like came into your heads whilst you were working on the film or is it kind of now a lot of people are pointing out it's like oh that's that's a great bit of again like kismet uh, kind of like the stars aligning for the film. Yeah, I think it's more of the the latter. You know, it was, again, I don't think much of this was a conscious mm-hmm. thing. I think in a way when it becomes conscious, it sort of loses its magic. Yes. So those things kind of can't coexist in a way. And so luckily we weren't thinking consciously in those terms and the magic just followed that. But um, no, I mean, and again, I think he... I think all the choices that Nick has made in his career have been very um, purposeful. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think there's there's a an unfairness to how some people have approached his work, where they're not seeing the larger context of the body of work that he's done mm-hmm. and how it kind of has moved in these waves. And again, I, I think Peg is just yet another chapter in a pretty remarkable career. And for people like yourself, who are obviously super fans of his, <laughs> I think you get it. Um, but yeah, no, it's an amazing, it's 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 a return to not, not necessarily an overarching form. It's a return to one specific form of many that I think he's really capable of. Yeah, it almost feels like a film that 
couldn't like he couldn't have done without the the career before him that, that was the kind of do you know what I mean it's like that that thing yeah, of like absolutely. and and again just because the role is so internal I think it required an actor who had a certain electricity yeah. that was always riding underneath the surface because for anyone else that doesn't have the background the cultural weight if you will behind them I think you know, I don't know that you would have felt enough of that magic and power underneath the surface, but there is something we're always waiting for him to kind of break out, if you will. And that creates a really interesting entropy in all of the scenes. So what was it about the the um, the world of fine dining that kind of excited you and made that like the, the, the kind of world in which you draped the story around? Yeah, I think it was a it was a, a context that offered a lot of interesting exploration of kind mm -hmm. of the the underground, if you will, yeah. and both like truffles as a commodity and also the restaurant scene is is cloaked in a certain uh, magic. Um, it, it's almost as if people haven't been able to get a full glimpse behind the curtain. Um, so I think we were interested in exploring, you know, the 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 darker underbelly of that. Mm -hmm. You know, elements of the hypocrisy of that, elements of the humor of that. Um, you know, obviously we we take creative liberties, and a lot of it is very heightened. Um, you know, we're not pretending like <laughs> fight clubs for restaurant workers necessarily exist. Although when we were in Portland on an initial scout, we went to a molecular gastronomy restaurant met with the chef there and we asked him kind of offhandedly you know what do you do in your free time and he's like I like to hit the shit out of a punching bag <laughs> and we were like yes that's how you burn off your your energy and frustration in the kitchen and it, it totally fit in with this um underground fight club that we had that we had created so um yeah I think it just it was it was really rife with with um uh a lot of you know, interesting opportunities to to kind of delve more deeply into that. Well, with all the the restaurants I've ever worked in, stuff like that, I think the film perfectly does capture this danger that like <laughs> that chefs kind of have that they they are like these almost like wild men of cooking. Do you know what I mean? Like these weird artists who, and I think like yeah. that that's what the film beautifully captures. And it's I know that um, it's again like speaking to brett buckman uh the editor that originally like the the this was a, a much longer film than it was like was it was it difficult to cut it down to like the the length it was or was it like killing darlings or was it like this is this is perfect as it as it's turned out uh, I mean, the editing process for us was really a discovery. I mean, I think the script, again, was a very strong blueprint for what we wanted to do. And ultimately, I think everything that existed on the page, you feel in the final product. So even though it went through um, an intricate discovery phase in the edit, it was almost more of a return to the initial intentions. Yes. And I think, like, for me anyway it was very important to stretch the film to the limits of its potential in the editing process. So I'm a big believer in taking a lot of risks in the edit, kind of, you know, breaking something apart only so you can put it back together in its its most beautiful form. So yeah, the edit, and I'm sure Brett talked about this, was, was stressful. We went through a lot um, to get it to this, this place. There were, there was a lot of, um, a lot of conflict and fights and yelling and all sorts of things, <laughs> lovingly, of course. But um, yeah, to get it to this place. But it was it, it, 
in terms of length, I mean, we definitely had a longer version of it, but um, this just felt like the most essential elemental version of the film that really kind of took the best of it and wove it together in a way that that felt true to the the initial intention. Well, when watching it, I, I kind of realized there's that pivotal scene with uh, Chef Finway that kind of happens like at the exact middle point of the film, like near enough. It's like the 45 minute mark and it kind of it feels perfect. And obviously it's interesting that Brett directed it, uh, uh, edited it, having mm -hmm. like kind of worked on another Nick Cage project with Mandy that kind of like yeah. this film beautifully feels like, um, again, it feels like kismet because it's like they're almost like two sides of, of a coin of this exploring like um, grief and loss. And I've, I've, flippantly like joke joke to brett that he's he's almost edited the nick cage man of the woods like trilogy with mandy mm -hmm. uh color out of space and now and now pig um yeah it's um i don't I, yeah brett, it's not really a question that is there <laughs> no but brett it's an opportunity for me to sing the praises of brett bachman who was who was amazing to work with so incredibly patient so thoughtful in his approach. Um, he came to us through, yeah, we just, we loved Mandy, thought he did an incredible job. Um, and I don't think we were even connecting the Nicolas Cage dots. <laughs> and it's sort of funny that he's become a little bit of the de facto um, Nicolas Cage editor, I guess, is how we've, we've referred to him. But yeah, he was, he was just an amazing, very measured approach. Um, really like helped us experiment and again, stretch the limits of the film, was always willing to to go to places that we had no idea if they would work, but we always wanted to try it. So there was a real beautiful um, freedom to experiment mm -hmm. um, in the editing process. Uh, and he really provided the framework for that. So just, yeah, I can't say enough good things about Brett Bachman. At what point did um, Alexis and Philip come on in regards to the score? Because yeah. I'm always interested to know, like, was there a temp score used for this or like, was there an idea of, how you wanted the film to sound early on like even like script writing was it was the film written like with with music in mind you know it the, the film was written with a lot of silence in mind mm -hmm. honestly again going back to that kind of initial tone that we imagined for this it was always something very meditative internal silent a lot of sound design because obviously the soundscape of the forest is so rich um, and immersive and that was really important to us again to feel the movement of this character through different realms and so we wanted the realm of the forest which is where he's you know hold himself up and removed himself from the world to have its own auditory experience once he leaves that behind there's something very invasive about the mechanical sounds the sounds of mm -hmm. commerce the sounds of the city so you know he's overwhelmed by that you see that in almost this hallucinogenic sequence as he's driving into the city with a mirror as the bridge is passing over his head we wanted it to feel that this was a man that was being totally overwhelmed by this journey out of you know reclusive living mm -hmm. into this this world of the city so the sound of the spaces was very important to us and figuring out how to interweave that with a score that would heighten the emotionality of the film without drowning it in sentimentality all of that was a discovery um 
very long conversations. We put our composers through so much. They were <laughs> incredible. Um, really trying to find what the vibe of the music would be in the edit. But to your initial question, we actually cut the film dry initially. So no temp oh, wow. music on a first cut. Um, the composer, Alexi Grapsas, came into the process fairly early um, and looked at a dry version of the film film and it was more of conversations about the direction of the music than it was us forcing temp into the process. So that gave him a lot of freedom to bring his own creativity. Um, and then Philip Klein as well, um, who came on a little bit later in the process as well, who was just amazing to work with. So yeah, I just felt like um, the composers allowed for a lot of, of um, experimentation and were really patient with us as we found the sound of the film. It's really interesting to hear that it was edited dry because yeah. it allows the film to kind of have those moments of quiet. And I think that's, that's what that, yeah, that's where this film shines, especially again, with that baggage of a Nick Cage, like you watch a sizzle reel of Nick Cage loses his shit. And this film, you don't get that. And it's, it's, it's the quiet moments that make it such a, such a beautiful film. Um, Another thing I always like to, Oh, sorry. No, no, you go. Oh, no, I was just going to say to that silent thing, you know, the silent approach. I also just think Nick Cage as a as a man, as a human being, like outside of acting mm -hmm. is a very introspective and highly intuitive human being. And so there's actually that kind of silent introspection is innate to who he is. And yeah. so, again, I think it was more about him just embodying Rob as a character as himself in a way as his kind of true self. Yeah. Um, so that that's very connected to just who he is, which mm -hmm. I don't know that a lot of people know about him, but um, there is something very subdued, quiet and intuitive no, about I, him. I know that he said like the film Joe is very much like that's the the closest at that time that he, he felt like he'd He'd played himself and this very much feels like a companion piece to that and it's um i know that david david nell said that um he didn't know what to expect from nick or like going in and like obviously i would say like if anything D david manages to to do what would like be like a quintessential <laughs> yeah. nick performance like the kind of the ticks and the kind of i don't know going out there when it when it needs to be Bigger than bigger than Nick, bigger performance than Nick in that scene. It's kind of funny. Yeah, he out caged Cage, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So when when the um, when you've got the actors on board and stuff like that, it's I always like to know: was there any like films or kind of literature or anything like that that you kind of said to them like, "Hey guys, ch check this out. Like this may give you like an idea of the tone we're going for on this." Yeah, it was not as much on on comp films, honestly. I mean, we had we had some things in mind where there were shades of films, but this really was kind of its own mm -hmm. unique thing. I think that we had we had some tonal references. Obviously, like we're big fans of the Cohen brothers. I think there's elements of that. You know, they do this kind of the magic and like the moving through realms where each, you know, secondary character feels like its own character in a film, right. its own protagonist in a film entirely. So there was that sense, but it was much more, I think, the references that we gave were just, you know, references of Portland, the space, talking about our intentions of cinematography and tone. So yeah, we didn't have too many specific film references for this one. Amazing. Um, I'll, I'll ask you, you know, just one last question before I let you go is, why Bruce Springsteen's I'm on fire? 
what was it about that song that like what, what, what yeah why was that song chosen well i think initially we had talked about other songs i mean this was something that came to us both as a function of a creative choice but also budgetary restrictions were mm -hmm. a tiny movie but i think we felt creatively that um there was a beautiful again, feminine quality to it. It's a film about love and passion. And um, Cassandra, who did the, the the final song, she both played guitar and sang, brought such a, a, a spirit and a soul to the performance. And so when she did this acoustic version of it, we felt like that really, it felt like the type of song that a lover from your past would would sing and like yeah. record for you. It just it had a melancholic but but sensual, lovely, feminine soul to it, and it just it just really felt right. It's funny because a lot of with music we found throughout the whole process, both for the score and for the final song, it's like almost impossible to articulate. Mm -hmm. Music is like it's it's this thing that just exists outside of language. Like how do you even? I'm struggling to even answer the question because it was just so felt, you know, that it was right. And I, I don't even know how to exactly put it into words. I mean, that's probably my best attempt, but it just, it just felt right is yeah. the answer. Yeah, it kind of perfectly, like it's, it's one of those things as well that really makes you just want to sit through the credits as well. Cause it is this beautiful yeah. rendition. And I love the fact that even after the song finishes, you kind of, it goes back to that sound design of of the forest and stuff like that and it's kind of i didn't know it, it feels like the film you're, you're just you're you're given this peek into rob's life and then like you can only hope that he finds happiness somewhere down the line yeah no ever since we recorded i'm on fire with cassandra i to this day we're two years almost after finishing the film and i'm still singing it in the shower <laughs> <laughs> amazing um so like I know in like movie making stuff like that it's it's always impossible to talk about what's coming up in the future uh, do you have any plans to to work with Michael again or are you kind of just basking in the kind of joys of of having released this amazing film we're working we're doing a lot of work actually <laughs> we're basking in simultaneously um yeah so for for us as a collaboration we have a, a television show that we've developed that we're just beginning to put together um, based on a, a true story of an amazing man that we met who has extrasensory perception so very much a character study about his life story which is um, really unique and fascinating and then um, another project is a science fiction film that um, i'm going to be directing that uh, is very much a, a labor of love. It's female-driven, socially conscious science fiction that we hope to bring back to Oregon. Amazing. To well, shoot from Oregon. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of cool things in the works. <laughs> Riding the wave of of you know basking in this in this amazing film, but also wanting to continue creating. Amazing. Well, I I can't wait to see what you guys do next, and I'm sure I speak for loads of other people it's as i'm sure you're aware the kind of the the general consensus for this film seems to be that like people love it and it's um i can only imagine what that kind of feels like to be to be a part of part but a part of it yeah it's, it's wonderful i'm i'm just thrilled for everyone who gave so much to the project and it's yeah it's amazing to make something that feels like it's moved and had had resonance with people around the world honestly yeah. like you're, you're pretty far away and <laughs> we're speaking 
have and you you seem to really love it so there's nothing more gratifying when you when you pour yourself into something to feel it being received this way it's amazing yeah I've kind of been end up like living and breathing this film somewhat kind of talking to loads of people involved and um, I find myself walking in the woods like listening to the soundtrack for my like daily like kind of wander out of the house and it's uh yeah can I ask you a question yes I want to ask what so what what do you think um in the film you've connected so strongly to because it's obviously really affected you I think it is that thing of like like loss and I always like had a similar um reaction to to Mandy in that thing of like not even like to do with like loss as in uh the death of somebody or kind of just that like deep feeling of losing something and I, I think the I don't know the existential feeling that that Rob has like that 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 central speech he gives to Chef Finway just really resonates with me because I'm just I, I'm always like I don't know like there's something about that that kind of like meaninglessness to it all and the the way that like yeah rob says to amir as well if i hadn't gone searching for what what like for the pig in my mind it could have it could have still existed and it's like yeah that like that 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 kind of really nails the the yeah there's just perfect kind of summations of of these deep feelings that i guess a lot of us have and yeah like really connected to that yeah absolutely and the commonality of that obviously mm -hmm. because so many people are connecting to it so it speaks to how this is really like these stirrings exist within us and i think they transcend gender race creed yeah. all of it it's it's the human experience you know yeah. we're all going to have to uh live through loss yeah. um both loss of loved ones and loss kind of of our own lives you yeah. know that's the reality of being mortals so i think yeah it, it's tapping into something very deep in people and that's exciting because you hope that cinema can be this bridge where you know it sort of transcends those barriers and and you know becomes an experience that we can all participate in and hopefully bring us closer in the commonality of that so what an amazing thing to be able to be a part of bringing something like yeah. that to people yeah it's pretty cool yeah i guess one of the things that the film really um highlights as well is kind of uh, uh where like who are you going to become in your life like how are you going to deal with this are you going to become rob or are you going to become um adam alkin's character as well and i found that 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 is just a really fascinating thing especially like um i've got a very young son and i'm always like that thing of like oh like do you know what I mean like well, there, there's a lot yeah. of crossroads little crossroad moments and yeah yeah there's there's so there's, yeah, as you mentioned there's so much in this for, for everyone and as much as like as you said a lot of what you see on screen is a male protagonist antagonist and stuff like that it's it's universal that, that i think it will speak well it already is speaking to a lot of people but i guess as it starts to open up in different countries around the world that kind of ripple effect will be seen absolutely that's the hope for sure <laughs> well <laughs> vanessa thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much what a lovely interview thank you for having me Thank you once again to Vanessa Block for her time. 
I'm sure you'll agree with me that it was a fantastic and insightful interview and <laughs> you'll probably be aware that I was, I was kind of thrown off when Vanessa asked me that question about my opinions on the film I kind of I don't know <laughs> I didn't expect that and to be honest as well I was, I was slightly hung over when we recorded this chat but I don't think that takes away from it if anything it probably makes me a little bit more vulnerable and uh, yeah made for an interesting conversation for US listeners you can now watch Pig on VOD so you'll probably be able to find that everywhere you'll normally be able to rent stuff UK listeners We've only got a few more weeks to wait until the 20th of August. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. As always, I've been Petrus Pat Syllabus. I've been looking for a pig and I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copa Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.